starting to feel like where where is the meaning in life and that i think that the truth of saint thomas that he teaches and of you know of god and the gospel is really common sense in a lot of ways and it's the kind of thing that you know we have we get emails from like theologians who are really excited about the hillbilly thomas and we get a lot of emails from homeschool moms who are really excited about the hillbilly thomas wow that's beautiful it really goes to show the range and the full accessibility and and the real heart, one thing that's unique about this album, it was created in the midst of a pandemic. And you also released an online quarantine sessions where you all are creating music in isolation, really including this beautiful song, Singing Redeeming Love. And what a moment to watch this. As you see all of you playing together, the moment when you all come in listening, waiting to be in harmony together from your separate quarters, your distant cities, all finding the same pulse. And I just thought, what a true testimony to the living Christ just brimming in all of us, just waiting to come out. And I and I think that really touches on what you're saying about the, the core unit of the family and what we're trying to create together as community. I think that's a beautiful observation. I, one thing we find in the in the band is that uh, working together as as brothers in the same religious society where we pray together during the day and break for prayer and also have to, of course, cook together and do the whole production as a team is that it deepens our fraternal life and our sense of our, you know, kind of Christian communion. It's interesting to go from Eucharistic communion into a studio and try to work together on songs that we love and that we want to be creative about and professional about. And that as a kind of just, you know, pure gift of fraternal creativity for the the church and also for our own Dominican life. So we, we feel that very deeply and we're really touched that so many homeschool families have chosen to prioritize the music in their own life, in their own, you know, for their children as a resource for them. Yeah, I mean, it's just really beautiful too how, I mean, some people may have stopped recording or, or working together given the quarantine, given the pandemic, but what a real outlet for all of you, but then also for us as listeners to really sit in and, and experience this in this way. I've heard one of the tracks, Good Tree. Can you tell us a bit about the origin of this song and what inspired it? Well, Father Justin Bolger um, wrote that song, and he is here in Providence with, with Father Simon and, and myself. He's the, the head chaplain in campus ministry here. And, um, and he and I have, have played a lot of music, um, the two of us, since we've both been together in campus ministry this year. And, and so we were sitting down, I guess it wasn't too, too long before we got together to record last summer, um, and he said he wanted to show me this new song. And so he just had his guitar, and it was sort of it was a, a pr fairly simple uh, arrangement of the song, and uh, but very catchy, you know. And so he we sort of just listened to it a little bit and played around with it a little bit, and and you know I said, well we've got to we've got to record this with everyone, you know. And uh, and so when we all came together to record it, it really grew, you know. I mean, uh, so the 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 version of it that's in that video, which which we put out a few days ago, is uh, a live recording. You know, you're seeing us performing the song sort of uh, as you're hearing it, and so it's it's slightly different audio than the album version which which really does grow into this really kind of triumphant sounding i mean it's a very joyful sounding song you know and it's full of both the joy of the gospel i think this is one of the things i love about this song is that it's full of the joy of the gospel it's very rich in the way that it uses this imagery from all over scripture about the tree which is nourished by the living waters and provides shade for the birds of the air and, you know, but it also is this hope that I want to be this good tree. I mean, the, the refrain of the song is, oh, to be a good tree, oh, to be a good tree, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful combination, I think, of the joy of the gospel and of the joy of the hope that we have in the grace of Christ who transforms us to be 
good trees, you know. So it's a real uh, testament to his songwriting and also just to the richness of, of the gospel. It is a, a really beautiful song. And I have to say, I own the other two albums, but the first one is definitely my favorite with so many songs of Americana being shared. But I think my favorite is perhaps his song, I believe written by Father Justin also, I'm Just a Dog for My Lord. Is that his song? <laughs> it is. You know, and that's yeah. just a beautiful song. I really love it. I have that album on in the car all the time, and my daughter loves it. And speaking to how many people, just family-wise, it's just a, a real heart-filled moment in the car listening to this music. Uh, in the line, spreading fire while I got earth, and how you wish, you know, it was already lit, you know, but... Here you are working still, and I just think there's such beauty in that. Can we dig into a little bit why the Dominicans are known as hounds of the Lord? Absolutely. So the background for that is that apparently Blessed Jane of Osma, the mother of St. Dominic, had a dream right before he was born that there was a dog kicking in her womb, and then she saw in the dream the dog, after it was you know, born, so to speak, running around Europe with a torch in its mouth, and this was seen as a prophetic dream of St. Dominic, who would be one of the first mendicant friars traveling from place to place, preaching the gospel, a hound of the Lord, you know, going abroad and bringing the fire of the truth. Now, it's also the case that in Latin, Dominicanus and the word for dog, cane, can kind of be put together. So you have the Lord's dog or Dominicacanus, Dominicus, cane. Dominicus can, can form the word Dominicanus, which is also the word for the Dominicans, those who come from St. Dominic. I'm not getting the Latin exactly perfect, but the point is that you have a pun in the language itself of those three words. So amazing. It really is. And just even knowing that song now, it just speaks more loudly. So thank you so much for sharing that, Father Thomas Joseph White. We are here on EWTN Radio. I'm Elisa Murphy on Register Radio, and we're blessed to have some of the members of the amazing Hillbilly Thomas with us, including Father Thomas Joseph White, who just spoke live from Rome. We also have Father Simon Teller as well as Father Peter Gouch. Now, we are releasing the brand new album, Holy Ghost Power, and it is so very exciting. Now, you also just released tour dates for the old highway tour. I was happy to say, or shall I say relieved, that New York was just added to the lineup. But can you tell us about this tour and what's behind the name for the old highway tour? The, the whole notion of the old highway tour comes from one of the songs on the album, on the old highway, this is a song I wrote, which is sort of a story of a mystical vagrant, for lack of a better term, who is a person who has abandoned his ordinary social responsibilities to travel America uh, and find God. So it's a somewhat zany song, although it has a kind of a, I think, a haunting resonance to it. There's a slight homage, perhaps, to Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash in the album in terms of the style. And Peter has a tremendous uh, solo on the slide guitar in the midst of this 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 piece. So it's a kind of haunting traveling piece about driving west on Highway 66 in America. And so I think the band just spontaneously named the the tour after this idea of, you know, traveling, seeking God, playing music, that kind of thing. And is this your first tour or have you guys toured before? Oh, no, yeah, this, this is our this is our first tour. So we're really excited about this because before a couple of, or a couple of years ago, you know, before the pandemic, we would play at Appaloosa concert in in Virginia and we would do a couple local shows around DC every once in a while. But we've never really had any sustained public performances. And this is really the first time that we'll be putting on true concerts and you know, a true concert series, a tour. So yeah, this will 
will be our first tour, and we're really excited about it because we can also bring our music to places outside of the D.C. area, which is where the band came together from the Dominican House of Studies. But, like, we're going to, like you said, New York. We're going to Cleveland, to Cincinnati, to Nashville, to Chicago, to Pittsburgh. And there are a lot of people. It's really great to be able to bring our music to the people who love it. I believe I read on a press release about the tour, as you all eloquently state, a band like none other the hillbilly Thomas remain friars, preachers, even when on the stage. A dynamic that promises to give each show a spiritual itinerary of its own, passing through this world below onto the bright land of that new city lit by the Lamb. Can you speak a little bit about of that kind of witness? Well, I think that, especially for our, our last album and this next album, most of the, almost all of the songs are original songs, um, which has given us, I think, some more freedom as preachers to preach with the, the music that, that we perform for people and that we record. Because there, there's some there's some good things to meditate on in a lot of the Americana standards, and some of the ones we chose for our first album were chosen kind of for that, that reason. Um, but to be writing our own songs and performing those now for, for people more has given us, I think, increased number of, of avenues for, for reaching people. And so... The sort of, yeah, the ability to bring music to people on a tour as a, a certain mode of, of preaching, really. I mean, like, like, you know, you're saying, I mean, we, we do remain friars preachers even when we're on stage. It, it is really exciting to be able to both, you know, bring the music that, that we're really excited about to people, but, um, but to preach to them. I mean, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're called to do. I mean, it's, it's said of Saint Dominic, um, that, that he always spoke to God or about God. And he encouraged his brothers to do the same. So as much fun as the music is, it also we, we intend it to be spiritually edifying for people and, and helpful. And, you know, we're hoping that the tour will be a, an occasion for us to be able to do that uh, through the music. It's interesting uh, to just note that a big theme of the Pope's last papal document was a f- focus on liturgy. How do you think the mission of the Hillbilly Thomas may help draw attention to the importance of music in our own lives as well as even at Mass? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that like Father Peter said, that our music is always, it's a pre, you know, it's a preaching ministry of our province, of the Dominican province, St. Joseph. And that one of the great things about this preaching ministry through music is that it shows the different ways in which music can function within the Christian life. And that, that there is a way, you know, music, there's music that we use in our formal liturgical worship. But there's also ways in which we just sing to praise the Lord. There's music that functions within the Christian life outside of the liturgy. And I think that that's where, definitely in our Dominican tradition, that's where we place the Hillbilly Thomas kind of music, where, you know, it came from our fraternal life of playing music together, you know, in the recreation room. And I think we really bring it into other people's, you know, living rooms and into their hearts in that way. Yeah, it's really, really just a true testament to all of the, faculties and all of the things we have at our fingertips to transmit the gospel, the joy of the gospel to so many. And as as you all know, here, of course, in, in this country, the United States, Roe v. Wade was just reversed. We have the country here half celebrating, half mourning, or worse, vandalizing Catholic churches as well as pro-life pregnancy centers. We are a bit fractured at the moment in our own country. And, you know, just this past weekend, I watched as the fireworks uh, went off over New York on the 4th. 
everyone gathering, remembering our nation. And it's really amazing to consider, you know, they were playing a lot of the old military songs and a lot of the old, old timey songs that were some of the first of our nation. And it really goes to show how how music has become a vital role in our lives and in the building of community. And I really think your music and what you guys do is a true testimony to that. And also, can you speak a bit about the role of improvisation in your music? Because you all find the same pulse, but it might take a few seconds to get there. Well, look, I mean, when you play music together, the creativity of one person spurns the creativity of another. And one of the things that's obvious about this whole process for us is that when we bring material, whether it's songs or solos or ideas about how to recreate past, starting to discover a way of pre presenting it, you can find the complementarity leaping out of another person's creative imagination and then taking the thing further. And so the, the compilation of everyone playing together is far more profound and rich than any singular effort. But I think that that's true in general about cooperation among human beings in creative and political life. So, you know, inviting people to collaborate with the Catholic mission in the Catholic Church and inviting people in the broader culture to collaborate in the renewal of culture is a key theme in our own Catholic lives. And music is a way that you can go beyond some of the normal frontiers of conversation about morality, politics and religion and enter into another kind of conversation, another kind of collaboration around the enjoyment of beauty and the celebration of life that's embodied in human music. Yes, well, I hope everyone takes that opportunity this summer. As you all are touring, the old highway tour kicks off this summer. And make sure to pick up the new Hillbilly Thomas album out July 7th, Holy Ghost Power. Father Thomas Joseph White, such a pleasure to chat with you, as well as Father Simon Teller and Father Peter Gouch. I really appreciate your time, and and I really think that that music that it's such a, a the sound the the bluegrass style. There's so many things that are so unique about it, and you guys should just know how much it really does carry so many when when they're when you know through through moments and also in moments of celebration. So thank you so much, honestly. Well, uh, thanks for saying that. That yeah, that means a lot, Elisa. Thank you. To read a transcript of Elisa Murphy's conversation with the hillbilly Thomist, go to ncregister.com and look for "Rocking Out with Dominican Friars." And remember, there's a lot more news analysis and commentary at the National Catholic Register, so please go to ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Elisa Murphy and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully.
Doug Pack talks with Catholic authors about their work and their faith life. EWTN Bookmark is next on most of these EWTN radio stations. This is EWTN Catholic Radio. Cresta in the afternoon. Beloved and blessed. The Catholic Cafe. Scripture and tradition. No one does Catholic radio like EWTN. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The public feud between pro-abortion Nancy Pelosi and her pastor, Archbishop Salvatore Cordeleone, has inspired people of all faiths. Pelosi claims to be a devout Catholic, but recently led extreme pro-abortion legislation through the U.S. House. Here are a few comments by her pastor regarding Pelosi's behavior. Referring to the legislation, he said it was the kind of thing one would expect from a devout Satanist, not a devout Catholic. Earlier, he referred to the bill as nothing less than child sacrifice, adding any reasonable person with a basic sense of morality and inkling of decency cannot but shudder in horror at such a heinous evil being codified in law. Talk about speaking truth to power. Imagine the impact if every pastor in America spoke out so boldly. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. The most original Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. What's really more important, how you feel about something or the facts? This is Doug Keck. This week on the Catholic Sphere, join Father Robert Spitzer, Father Brian Mullady, and Colin Donovan as we discuss emotivism, the decline of rationality, subjectivism, and so much more. The Catholic Sphere, tomorrow afternoon, 2.30 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Welcome to EWTN Bookmark. In this continuing series, EWTN features Catholic authors and their books. You'll hear from established authors as well as first-time writers expressing their love for the Catholic faith. Now, here's your host for EWTN Bookmark, Doug Keck. And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host our guest author, Deacon Dennis Lambert, his book, For Real, Christ Presence in the Eucharist, published by Liguori Publications, naturally available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Welcome, Deacon, yeah, to EWTN's me, uh, bookmark. Uh, I got to see you back during the family celebration yeah. last summer. Uh, and then people remember back before Christmas, you were on with, with, with Father Mitch talking about this book. I appreciate you stopping by. You know, we love books that have to do with the real presence in the Eucharist because, um, you know, Mother Angelica and her focus on Eucharistic devotion. We know why it was important to her and the church. Why is it important to you? Why is it important to me? Well, the answer should be why is it important for any Catholic or why should it be? The Catechism spells it out. It is the source and summit of our faith. This is essentially who we are. 
as Catholics what we are as far as that goes. Without it, I cannot see, you know, the, the meaning of being Catholic. It is Christ himself, the, the ultimate gift of grace to us. Right now, you're now, and you're a Thomistic scholar, aren't you? And and that what you did before? No, that's not. No. So, how did you, who was a did, worked in pharmaceuticals, I believe, right. uh, you know, how did you decide as a deacon at this point to take on this project? Well, I can give two reasons for that. You know, first of all, because there is such a giant need for it, mm-hmm. and second of all, you know, second reason is actually it's personal. The first reason, as far as the need. I think most of us are aware that there are so many Catholics who do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, Pew did a a very significant survey in 2019. And two findings from that that that, that strike me. And the first is everyone knows about it. It doesn't strike me as much as the second one. The first Mm -hmm. finding is that two-thirds of anyone who calls themselves Catholics do not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. But that when you say anyone who calls themselves Catholic, that could be someone baptized Catholic, never entered a church, some, you know. Sure. So I'm not so hammered by that statistic. The one that does get me, Doug, is the one that, that shows that of people who attend Mass regularly, right. one-third of those people do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. What do they think it is? Well, largely symbol, or mm-hmm. it's a metaphor. It's breaking of the bread is a, a community meal, as far as that goes. Um, I'm not surprised by this because that was once me. You know, I understand that. Yeah. Right. You say, I once identified as a non-believer in the real presence. However, that changed when I began my own objective research into the topic. In fact, you tell a story about... Uh, your kids, right, and a banner that your wife put together and that you titled a certain way, yeah, and why that had meaning to you. Right. I'll have to give a little backstory before we yeah, get to sure. that to that banner. But that is the second part of where I was going in terms of the reason for this book is also personal. Mm-hmm. Again, as I said, I was once a non-believer. I'm a cradle Catholic. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, my story is basically I was thankfully you know, born into a family of good parents, good Catholic parents. Mm-hmm. Um, went to church every Sunday. They were very involved in the church. Um, we had a Catholic grade school attached to our, to our parish as well. Um, whenever my parents had a get-together, a party, if you will, there were priests and nuns there. So I was very tied in, okay. you know, to it. Um, and I went to that Catholic grade school. Uh, when my kids grew up, they ended up going to that ca- Catholic grade school. Just a very good upbringing. And then went to Catholic high school, uh, Carmel High School in Mundelein, Illinois. Two significant things happened for me there. First was I met my wife. Uh, it's actually Catholic high school where the girls were on one side and boys were on the other. The only time we ever saw each other was for lunch. And, well, someone right. set up us on a blind date. The second thing was I had a great priest for teaching me religion in, in junior and senior year, Father Tom Drolet, a Carmelite. Right. And he just really had this way of teaching script, scripture and faith. He, you know, he, he, he brought an intellectual component to it, but also an inward component. So I was there a junior in high school. Maybe I was the only guy then who was like, wow, I'm really liking this. So significant things happened you know, where, with regards to my pathway of faith. Uh, College. Well, you, you had the typical thing where you go to college and exactly. then find yourself questioning your college, faith. So college comes right. around, and I don't know how it happens, but suddenly I have all these questions about my faith. And I, I developed a little treatise. You know, here's little Dennis's treatise about the church. 
and Doug, I made a crucial mistake. What I did at that point, instead of taking my questions, you right. know, to the church, to somebody knowledgeable, I went to the right. Uh, I was invited to play on this softball team with some friends at a non-denominational Christian church. And back then there was a lot, these were great people, nice people, best intentions, mm -hmm. you know, but there was really an anti-Catholic sentiment back right. then. And they were just overjoyed to do have you, a... Do you think there's less of that these days oh, yeah. with many evangelicals? Oh, I think, And because yes. of the meeting over the pro-life issue in a lot of ways? I don't know what the reason together. is, yeah. but I'm just talking about, like, the early 80s. Right, exactly. There was, right. Yeah, so I went and found, found a home there. I was there for two years, you know, and they answered all my questions, believe it or not, just like this. You know, they, they were on it. Here, it's right here in the Bible. It's right. Well, proof texting is... Uh, exactly. So, for, initially that this was wow this is it mm -hmm. after a while I'm like some of these things not settling so well and thankfully I was like what you call from the, the, the parable of the sower I was the seed that fell on rocky soil mm -hmm. I sprung up real quickly this is great but after a while you know so I finally did what I should have done from the beginning I went back to the church I made an appointment uh, at my parish to meet the new associate pastor to, to sit down and and surprise, me. surprise. Exactly. And, well, surprise, surprise. I go in there. This is the literal truth. I go in there, and it's Father Tom Drury. Right. You know, I have no idea how he got from being, you know, a Carmelite assigned to a high school to being a... But bottom line, the well of our faith is deep. Mm -hmm. I returned to the church. In fact, I remember the day I actually physically got went back into the church. I'm walking down the middle aisle. My parents are front and center. I slip into the pew behind my dad and tap him on the shoulder. I go, Dad, I'm back. And he turns to me and he says, I was just praying for you right. to return. I was back, Doug, but not really. Mm -hmm. the, those two years, you know, in the, the um, non-denominational world really dinged me. Especially with the Blessed Mother, right? Blessed Mother and the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. I carried with me forward, again, just that the Eucharist is a symbol. Right. Which brings me up to the Eucharist, the banner we're talking about. Right. My kids ended up going to that same Catholic high school. They're making their, their first Holy Communion, each of them. My son was first, and we were asked, you know, to create a, a, a banner. You know, you put it at the your pew for your family. Right. Uh, but they were instructions were, you know, design it, you know, and then sit down and talk to your child about what it means. So my wife was the artist. She did it, but I directed her. This is what to put on it. Right. On the banner it says, I remember. And there's nothing wrong with it, but that I, what I did, Doug, I sat down to, with my children and explained to them, when you receive communion, you remember all the good things God did for you. They died on the cross. Nothing wrong with that. But as we know, I left out something very right. significant. Well, what about your wife? What, what was her take on that when you did that? Um, unfortunately, it goes to show the, the, the significant role a man plays in the family dynamic. Mm -hmm she followed me. Mm -hmm. So my regrets are I withheld from my own children the truth that they were receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our, our Lord and in the process too taking my wife right. down that path as well. Now you talk about throughout the book your, your main thing you, you have this concept or an analogy of a relay race right. and, and that's how you go about in fact kind of teaching about the real presence and supporting it scripturally etc. How did you come up with the idea of a relay race? I have no idea how I came up with the idea. You know, it just kind of made sense. I wanted to, because I came to the point, too, first of all, I came to the point, obviously, where I had a reconciliation about this is our Lord, our God. Uh, it came to me, um, you know, thinking about this term. I remember hearing about being a cafeteria Catholic, you know, mm -hmm. go through the line, I want right. this. And I, did, and I thought to myself, that's me. 
I don't want that to be me. So I set on an intellectual course to really research the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I got to the point where I'm on my knees, my Lord and my God, a believer. So fast forward now to wanting to write, write this book. Uh, I felt compelled, again, based on the need mm -hmm. that's out there. You know, as Catholics, we are called to evangelize. You know, Pope Paul VI said the church exists to evangelize. St. John Paul the Great then says our mission fields have focused. We need to be focused in our neighborhoods and in our pews. And again, with one-third of those Catholics that are potentially in those pews, you know, not believing, I said, we've got to do something. I'm well, not the only one, but yeah. So, well, so when you deal with that and you talk about evangelization and things like that, do you ever have somebody say, well, why, why do you need to evangelize? What's the reason? I mean, it might be a nice thing to do. You have found something and it's nice in your life. But is it really that important? It is very important. And not only important, but it's on us. We're baptized Catholics. We're baptized Christians. Part of that is sharing in the mission of the church, right? So how can we not? How can mm -hmm. we not... When, when we're talking about the source and summit of our faith, you know, how could we not share that or want to, to teach that, knowing that, again, our, some of our brothers and sisters in our very pews start there, right. you know, and then we go out as far as to others who don't believe, as far as that goes, how can we not? Right. Now, you talk about the idea of being a Thomas or a childlike in your approach. So were you a Thomas in your approach to um, things? Yes. Yeah, so this is just... Deacon Dennis thought here in terms of, you know, how people come and, and, and you know, about with faith and mm -hmm. what they believe. Um, I, I, I believe that God's created creates us one of two ways, either like childlike or Thomas-like. Uh, by Thomas-like, I mean like the Apostle Thomas, you know, unless I put my fingers in your wounds, mm -hmm. you know, I've got it, you know. I think the Apostle... So you were a Chicago skeptic. Oh, exactly. Okay. Show me whatever. I, it, it's The Thomas person is the one who has to intellectualize everything. Mm -hmm. um, the childlike, I aspire to be. Now, some people might think, you know, well, you you got to be so smart, or you got to, you know, and, and this is, you're downplaying somebody. No. Who did mm -hmm. God, who did Jesus say we need to become like a child? Right. These are the people that they don't need necessarily the books. They, they look at the Eucharist, that's our Lord. Mm -hmm. How I want to be that person. But some of us, God made this way, you know, and actually right. we have to combine faith and reason. Thomas Merton says, you know, uh, as about the role of faith and reason, you know, faith takes over where reason can say no more. So, yes, I'm a Thomas. I wish I was more, just like, didn't need that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Thomas Burton, yet you, you've got this Baltimore Catechism quote about a sacrament as an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, which we all memorized when I was a kid. Right. Uh, so, so that's a little pre-Vatican, too. Are you sure you're not being overly fundamentalist in your approach to the Eucharist here? I, I don't believe so. <laughs> Short answer as far as, far as that. that. I mean, to me, that's a, such a, a quick, easy definition of it. Why not go to it? I mean... Again, then we get into Institute by Christ right. to give grace and, and add these other uh, things to it, you know, uh, outward right. side of an inward reality as well. Right. Going, you, know. you also have a, a really nice quote here from the USCCB, and, and basically it comes down to the idea of an analogy of a hug. Explain that. Yeah. Well, again, that was kind of going more like the Thomas-like versus the child-like. 
Um, I'd have to actually see it to read it. Well, it says here, we recognize that the sacraments have a visible and invisible reality, reality open to all human senses, but grasped in God's given depths with the eyes of faith. When parents hug their children, for example, the visible reality we see is the hug. The invisible reality is that the hug conveys love. We cannot see the love the hug expresses, though sometimes we can see its nurturing effect in the child. Yes, that's that, a really nice. Image. That, that's the right. sa- that's the sacraments. That was when we talk about that inward right. and outward reality. Right. What really we're talking about the sacrament. I saw that. I was like, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So what do you say to somebody who say, as you put out here, grace is free and undeserved, but yet it w- requires a response. Uh, so yes. if it's uh, if we don't do anything to get it, then how can we have to do something? To sure. Get Let it? me take a, a step back on that, Doug, if I, if I can. As far as grace. Grace, to me, first of all, it's ultimately what we receive in the Eucharist. Some people might say, okay, we receive grace, but so what? What is mm-hmm. grace? What is this benefit? And I actually remember when I was a newly ordained deacon, my, my pastor gave me an assignment to, to do a PowerPoint presentation on the sacraments. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that, and I know sooner or later I'm going to have to get to that question about grace. You mm-hmm. know, what is grace? And I remember getting there and then being like a deer in the headlights. You know, what exactly is grace? How do you describe it? And I thought, well, I could probably tap dance my way around it, but I felt like I don't have a good answer. Mm-hmm. Being a, a newly ordained deacon, I thought I had to have an answer. If someone came up to me, I better have. Sure. So I actually started researching what is a good definition, of, mm-hmm. a, a really true one. And then I came across the Catechism, uh, 1996. Uh, don't know if I nail it, but I'll paraphrase mm-hmm. it. It says, grace, grace is, is God's favor, the undeserved help that he gives right. us to hear and respond to his call to become his adopted sons, partakers of the divine nature and eternal life. When I heard that, I was like, aha, there's, there's grace also made so much sense and so relatable to the Eucharist. The first part, we don't deserve it. God wants to give it to us. Right. Th- thank you, Jesus. It was that second part, though. It was that second part that really resonated. You know, it's the, it's um, God, God's, it's us responding to his call. God is, is always calling out to us. I kind of envision that like like a radio signal. Since day one, Dennis, come this way. Trust me, it'll work out. Don't go that yeah, way. Yeah, kind of the hound of heaven approach. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. But the world's always seeking to block that that signal, right? And it, the world, well, We live in a noisy yeah. world these days. But when we receive God's grace, it gives us that ability, that second part of the definition, to hear his call, we hear that mm-hmm. signal, and then the most important thing is to do something about it. So when we receive God's grace, we receive that ability that strengthens our ability to follow him to hear and mm-hmm. respond it's it's essential this is why the eucharist is so so critical why it is the source of some you had those faith. that experience with the evangelicals for a period of time and you make the point you say ironically a pivotal cornerstone of the Protestant faith is the literal interpretation of scriptures a discussion for another place in another time the key takeaway is that the catholic position takes quite literally the words christ spoke this is my body but they're taking a literal and they and they're not getting that same meaning out of it no no it's it's, it's remarkable when you think about it because they are so literal in, in their translations but here they they seem to ignore mm-hmm. you know when when he says is the greek estin is means is there's just no doubt about it and then you open up you know, so much in terms of John 6 and everything else. There's just so much in Scripture that mm-hmm. points that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of our, our well, you Lord. You say you use the relay race imagery uh, to accomplish multiple goals in this book, a couple of goals. What we'll discover is that the baton, and we talk about the relay race, has never dropped. 
The message of the real presence of the Eucharist begins with Jesus himself as passed on, unbroken, unchanged, through recorded history from Christ to today. So that, that point of saying that there's this continuity in the church. Exactly. There wasn't this falling away right. or something in the after the early church fathers or exactly. after the closing fact, of canon or something right. else like that. Right. I think earlier on you mentioned what about the relay race. I right. never got to it, but now that we're here again, it, it's to me, I, I use the image of a relay race to really convey the points that this is truly Christ and how to follow the, the path of just kind of learning about this. The relay race has four legs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I'm using that. And then it's it's one continuous race, not four separate races. And the key is the baton should never drop. Mm-hmm. So in this analogy that I use in the book, and that's just how I walk people through the the story of the Eucharist, is it starts with Jesus. He's leg one. You know, they say save your best runner for last. In this case, we start mm-hmm. with Jesus. What did Jesus actually say and teach? Mm-hmm. He hands the baton off to the to the, the apostles. What did they teach? Is it congruent with what he taught? Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. Spoiler alert. They hand the baton on to the early church fathers. And I love the early church fathers because we have so much in writing. You know, Scripture is somewhat limited, but there's just so much more writing than the early church fathers. And every single one of them writes about the real presence of Christ right. in the Eucharist. Leg four is the church today. When you look at it all in totality, the story has started with Christ and has never changed. And I did have the experience uh, in the evangelical world that uh, the belief was, well, this is what they were told me, is that, no, the Eucharist, whatever, they would, that was some made-up theology. It was like the church looking for some way to explain the Eucharist. No. Right. It was what Jesus taught from day one. The priest wanted something to do to make them important. I guess. That's really what it yeah. was all about. It's interesting, too, because when you talk about it in the book with the four parts, you say that you, you go through the first one, two, three, and you're pretty, feel pretty fine. And you found, you said the toughest part was really the fourth part. Of, of, because it's so clear in the early church right. and up to the fathers, but then from the fathers on, it's a little more difficult to show how the church's teaching continued. Well, actually, I don't know so much that, that it was difficult. Actually, I kind of shortcutted that because we actually, as Catholics today, know exactly what the church teaches. So I, I simply, in that part, it's actually the shorter part, bigger part right. is what did Jesus say. The other parts here, I'm like, we know what we teach. Well, we should know, not everyone does. But I simply almost conclude that fourth section with just a couple of quotes from the Catechism, which again, when you read it, echoes right back to what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught, taught what the early church fathers taught. So in section one, you kind of talk of the prefigurement. You're talking about Melchizedek, uh, a name that showed up when we were kids uh, out of the blue. We didn't know where he showed up from. But but that idea of that prefigurement, that laying out the, the future that uh, of right. Christ's teaching. But you also refer to it then as you get into the second section, uh, the that whole idea of an overzealous sports promoter and the actual event he or she is hyping to attract tickets. Where'd you come up with that? Well, again, I was trying to somebody to emphasize how, you know, everything leading up to this point from the Old Testament, you know, that it is there's a there's this great buildup, but now it's payoff time. So they're hyping it. Everyone's on on it, saying this is the greatest thing. But now we have to show that it is, mm-hmm. and that leads right into leg one of the relay. What right. did Jesus taught in John chapter six? You say the key to understanding that Jesus was speaking literally. Uh, versus metaphorically lies when and in what context these two words he uses are used. And uh, you have the two words here uh, with a couple of different words, but uh, you want to, uh, one's phago, 
Is that what it is? P H A G O. Pharaoh and, and Trogon. Okay, and and what what is why is that important to understand how those got used differently? Yeah. Well, this was actually one of the things that helped turn me into a, a believer. Again, I had to, the Thomas-like person as far as that goes. But as you go through. John chapter 6, obviously Jesus is talking about that he is the bread of life, that mm. you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood or you won't have life, all this kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of times, again, our, our Protestant brothers and sisters will talk about it, that's all symbolic. Right. Wait a minute, we have a problem here. Not a problem, we have a solution. Uh, Trogon, first of all, phago is the typical Greek word for eat. Okay. Every day, eat. Trogon is actually a word, it's derived from this, this, this bird who, who burrows into, into trees to nest and stuff like that. The way that's translated mm -hmm. is, is to gnaw or to chew. Right. So Jesus, or 16, or excuse me, 14 times during John chapter 6, the word eat is used. Jesus switches, though, from saying fago in general terms to eat, to any time he starts talking about eating his flesh, he uses the, tro the word trogon. Now, mm -hmm. he didn't literally, it was translated, you know, into the Greek. So he, whatever word he used in Aramaic, you know, shifted the focus from just eat to chew to gnaw. So, and these are all occurring when he's talking about eating his flesh. Right. So place yourself in the crowd that day listening to this, you know, eat, eat, and there he says, Unless you chew on my blood, on my, on right. my body, etc. So th that's kind of a, one of the proofs that Jesus meant what he what, said. What he meant, what exactly. he said. Exactly. And obviously, we we know the famous scene with uh, "Will you two leave me?" You know, I mean, yes. he, uh, I mean, it was just a symbol. Why would anybody leave him? I mean, in in leg two, you you talk about without question the most critical component of the meaning of the Eucharist lies within what Jesus taught himself. And you say, as noted, there are more than 100 references made to the Eucharist in the New Testament from the followers of Jesus. While many are theologically tied, not direct statements like, this is my body, the number of Eucharistic connections coming from Jesus as follows after his death and resurrection are remarkable. Yes. Yeah. Now, largely, when they say there's 100 plus references to, to the Eucharist, not all of them are, you know, actual, like we could say, Trogon, Fago. Some mm -hmm. of them are kind of, you know, um, uh, more largely interpretive as far as that, more theological. Right. But there are direct things happening that are in writing from the apostles, you know, that clearly show mm -hmm. Jesus is, this Jesus meant what he said. One that I'm very fond of is uh, Paul's writing. I mean, the king of all apostles writes in 1 Corinthians, which, you know, was written just 20 years after Jesus' mm -hmm. resurrection. So this is baby time infancy in the right. early church mm -hmm. and he he talks he gives the bread of life or the uh, the last supper this is my body this is my blood right after that he follows it up with the the need for you to receive the 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 body the body and blood were worthily right that you needed to desert, dis discern the body and blood and that you needed to examine right. yourself before it why would anyone need to do Absolutely. this if it was just a common meal of a community or something like that? This is just 20, that's why I'm saying that baton goes, it doesn't drop. 20 years later, he, he is teaching the same thing that Jesus taught. Right, and, and, you, and you deal also in this with, uh, you talk about the Didache, the writings of the Twelve, and then uh, later you, you kind of focus on the fathers of the church, and as we talked about a little bit, that whole idea of 
reinforcing, and, and clearly this is what they believed at that point in time. It wasn't something that uh, somebody had to develop or that they were unaware of, right? Exactly. It started with Jesus, and there's just no, there's just no dropping of the ball or anything. It, it's the early church believed exactly that, and that's why it's, it's kind of a mystery, Doug, of how you know we have to wait to the 1500s for someone to, to cry foul, right. you know. Right, exactly. So we had it all wrong. Well, that's why you said here at the at the end of this that section before Lake Four was much harder is traversing down the long hallway of history to look for connections to the present, which was kind of what I was alluding to earlier. My hope is that your belief in the Eucharist has been sparked and or deepened. Is that how yours was? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of of learning all this stuff, it's. It, and again, I still wish I was more that childlike where mm -hmm. I didn't need, you know, all this kind of intellectual stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's the way God built me. You decided to put pen to paper here, so to speak. How long did it take you and when do you write and how do you write? Okay. Well, this took, I took, it was last summer. I think it took me about three, three or four months to, to, to write, mm -hmm. to put this book out as, as far as that goes. I had no idea at the time that the Eucharist re revival was around the corner. Right. I think that's the, the Holy Spirit, and maybe that's why I'm here today as, right. as far as that goes. Um, so uh, it was a lot of a blessing to, to be able to write. It's something I needed to do, again, just going back to the need, my personal need, you know, how I learned this, and again, just knowing that there are right. so many Catholics out there in need of this truth and that's how the book ends it gives a very simple and easy way for for people like us or anybody in the pew to consolidate this information and using that really really race right. really helps to kind of put it all in your mind and how to pass that on right and, and, and it's a small book it's easy, it's highly readable and it's something the average catholic can tackle without being afraid of that so thank you very much oh, deacon we appreciate deacon dennis lambert and his book for real christ's presence in the Eucharist, you bet. And it's available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, All Things Catholic. Thank you so much for stopping by Bookmark. We shall see you next time. The book featured on this episode of EWTN Bookmark is available from EWTN Religious Catalog. For more information, call EWTN Religious Catalog toll-free at 1-800-854-6316. That's 1-800-854-6316. Or log on to our website at www.ewtnreligiouscatalog.com. I'm Andrea Pachati-Bayer. Join me for Conversations with Consequences next on most of these EWTN stations. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This is Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly White House Correspondent. This is Raymond Arroyo, host of The World Over. Get trusted Catholic news every day on EWTN radio and television. St. Augustine gives us tremendous insight as to why we should pray. He says this, Why God should ask us to pray when he knows what we need even before we ask him may perplex us if we do not realize that our Lord and God does not want to know what we want, for as God he cannot fail to already know it. But rather he wants us to exercise our desire through our prayers so that we may be able to receive what he is preparing to give us. 
This is Sister Anya's Day of the Sisters of Life, and this is a prayer for life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Eternal Father, Source of Life, open our hearts to see and desire the beauty of your plan for life and love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, so that our love will be generous and self-giving, and we may be blessed with joy. Grant us great trust in your mercy. Forgive us for not receiving your gift of life and heal us from the effects of the culture of death. Instill in us and in all people a sense of the sacredness of every human life. Inspire our efforts to protect and care for the most vulnerable, especially women who are pregnant, their unborn children, the sick and the elderly. Strengthen us in the hope that with you nothing is impossible. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who by his cross makes all things new. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the Church. Get our trusted Catholic news in your email inbox. Sign up today at EWTNNews.com. KATH 910 AM